I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst residing in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 243 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today's episode is a discussion. First, we have Dr. Alyssa Martyr presenting her paper on ecocide and psychoanalysis. Presented by Dasumbahagen in February of 2021. The panel is moderated by Dr. Jameson Webster and Drs. Patricia Giorvici, Clint Burnham, and David Lichtenstein will be responding and part of the discussion to Dr. Marta's presentation. For more, you can visit Das Umbehagen website, dasumbehagen.org. That's D-A-S-U-N-B-E-H-A-G-E-N dot org. There is a video of this discussion at YouTube. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Visit Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast and all of my other creative endeavors at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. We do post exclusive content to our Patreon every week. Thank you so much to our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Jameson Webster, and you are at the event for Ecocide and Psychoanalysis. Um, and thank you so much for coming. Um, it's nice to see so many of you. It's been the case with these Zoom events that we reach an audience now much greater than the New York area, which is um, sort of magical, um, but also obviously on the background of the situation we find ourselves in um, with the pandemic. So it's a bittersweet welcome to everybody um, to this Das Unbehagen event. Um, our events tend to flow out of the last events. It's just the kind of organic nature in which we plan things. And um, during an, a, a six-part event on um, Afro-pessimism and the work of Frank Wilderson, Alyssa had made some comments about unthinkability um, and climate crisis, and we really wanted to kind of hear more of her thoughts about that. So that's where this um, arose. Jameson, yeah? even though I did have a lot to say about Frank Wilderson, it was actually Renata's book on denial. Was that, it Renata's book on denial? Yeah. Begin there? Oh, okay, so then we did Renata's book on ignorance. Ignorance. <laughs> ignorance. Yeah. And you brought up denial. Yeah. Um, and then it was from there that we, we planned this event. That's right. Okay. <laughs> One, Frank Wilderson, anti-Blackness, Renata Salatel, willful ignorance. Um, and now <laughs> the climate change denial and ecocide. So that's how we've gotten um, us today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read Alyssa's bio and then we're going to turn it over to her. And then when she stops, we have a discussion um, with Clint Burnham, David Lichtenstein, and Patricia Garavici, who I'll introduce at that point. Um, Alyssa Martyr is Professor of French and Comparative Literature at Emory University, where she's also a founding member of the Emory Psychoanalytic Studies Program. 
She's situated at the intersection of psychoanalysis, deconstruction, and feminism, and her work engages with texts and questions that tradition that challenge traditional concepts of temporality, birth, technology, sexual difference, and the limits of the human. Her publications include Dead Time, Temporal Disorders in the Wake of Modernity on Baudelaire and Flaubert, and The Mother in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, Psychoanalysis, Photography, Deconstruction, as well as Literature and Psychoanalysis, Open Questions. Um, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure to listen to you. I'm gonna turn it over to you, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, thanks, I wanna begin by thanking um, Patricia and Jameson for inviting me to think about this topic and um, they called my bluff. I was mouthing off at this Q&A and they were like, come, Patricia was like, come talk to us then. So what I'm about to do is some preliminary reflections and I look forward to the discussion. Now, what I'm also gonna do is read off the screen. So I'm gonna lose all of you and um, if something bad happens while I'm reading my text, um, I assume Jameson will text me. Um, a quick word about the title. I think that the title Ecocide in Psychoanalysis, which is great, um, Patricia coined. And I decided not to keep it for reasons that the paper will make clear. So I'm gonna read this paper, which is tentatively titled, Thoughts for the Times, Living Psychologically Beyond Our Means. In Thoughts for the Times on War and Death, a short work written as a response to the carnage and cruelty of World War I, Freud tells the following joke. Speaking to his wife, a husband says, if one of us two dies, I shall move to Paris. The joke is funny because it shows that when faced with even the remotest and most hypothetical prospect of his own death, the speaking eye unconsciously prefers to sustain its belief in its own immortality by displacing the burden of death onto the other, even if that other is none other than his own beloved wife. Freud tells this little one-liner to illustrate his claim that, quote, there is nothing instinctual in us which responds to a belief in death. At the level of the unconscious primary processes, not only is death something that can only happen to other people, but others only die because I wish them dead. Elaborating further on this point, Freud writes, our unconscious does not carry out the killing. It merely thinks it and wishes it. But it would be wrong to undervalue this psychical reality as compared to factual reality. Indeed, our unconscious will murder even for trifles. Like the ancient Athenian code of Draco, it knows no other punishment for crime than death. And this has a certain consistency for every injury to our almighty and autocratic ego is at bottom a crime of les majeste. At the end of Thoughts for the Times on War and Death, Freud explains that if he insists upon the murderous autocratic and tyrannical qualities of the primary processes, it is because not to do so could lead to a potentially riskier and more catastrophic exposure to future war. In the closing passages of that work, he asserts that, quote, in our civilized attitude towards death, we are living psychologically beyond our means. For Freud, the apparently rational expectation that we have moved beyond the aggressions associated with the primordial denial of death 
is itself an unrealistic and hence potentially even more dangerous act of denial. The savagery of war teaches Freud that the actions of sovereign nations like those of individual people are not governed by diplomacy and political rationality, but by reactive responses to the pressures from the primary processes. The expectation that the power of reason can resolve political conflicts is unreasonable, he claims, because it is unrealistic. Therefore, Freud proposes to ward off further violent consequences by taking a backward step that advocates a less aspirational, less idealized view of humanity. By stepping back, Freud aims to counter regression with regression. In lieu of the aggressive enactments associated with regression, he seeks to enlist regression's capacity to bring us closer to the truth about the fundamental conflicts that organize the people's relation to the world. Only by stepping back from the deluded belief that the actions of sovereign European nations are actually governed by the enlightenment moral and political values they claim to espouse, Freud says, will we be able to take the truth more into account so as to make life more tolerable for us once again? In the final lines of the essay, he writes, to tolerate life remains, after all, the first duty of all living beings. Illusions become valueless if it makes this harder for us. So when Freud concludes his essay with the bold maxim that tolerating life is our first duty, he, implici he implicitly acknowledges how difficult, if not impossible, it is to perform that essential duty. Psychoanalysis tells us that even under the best of circumstances, the psyche relies on illusions and denials to survive its encounters with the world. Each individual subject forms itself by constructing an edifice of psychic reality whose very purpose is to transform life into something tolerable. But if the psyche requires illusions in times of peace and prosperity because they hide the evidence of everything that threatens its tranquility, Freud here argues that the psychic energy necessary for maintaining those illusions simply costs too much in times of war. Because war attacks the illusions that make life tolerable, the psychic cost of trying to prop up those illusions becomes unbearable. Freud thus ends up saying both that tolerating life without illusion is not possible and that we can only do our duty to tolerate life by giving up the illusion that life is tolerable. Such is the double bind of war. Keeping these thoughts in mind, if we now turn to the psychic stresses elicited by climate change, the picture becomes even more complicated. In what follows, I would like to suggest that the complexity of the threats to the human psyche posed by climate change render it radically, inexorably unthinkable. And one of the reasons for this is that the phenomenon known as climate change is without a graspable, knowable object. The threats posed to the psyche are not reducible to anything that can be known or studied by science. Science can measure greenhouse gases, changes in the temperature of the ocean, the destruction of coral reefs, emissions, changes in weather patterns, animal extinctions, etc. And thankfully, in some cases, science can and will develop new technologies to counteract the harm done to the earth and its atmosphere. But however important and vital that knowledge and those reparative gestures may be, 
they do not and cannot take the measure of the impact of the real and psychic devastation that we are already living with, whether we know it or not, and that awaits us in the future. In preparing these thoughts, I've been struggling with the fact that there is no word that adequately captures the precise dynamic entanglement of human non-human agencies, temporal instability, incalculability, and cascading effects that I am trying to describe here. The umbrella term climate change cannot account for the colossal scale, speed, scope, range, and impact of the many interrelated and compounding consequences of the damages that have already been done and that are to come. While I like the word ecocide that was proposed in this panel's title because of its evocation of a primordial crime scene and for the way in which that word conjures up a symbiotic reciprocal feedback loop whereby humans have killed the earth that is now killing humans. I also find it inadequate. I, while I like the way it stages the murder of the primal other as a suicide, I find that ecocide is always too much of an ego side. Therefore, I ultimately chose not to use the term ecocide because for me, it posits a scenario in which the ego is endowed with too much consistency, agency, and stability. As I see it, ecocide conjures up a conflict in which there is still the perceptible trace of a subject-object relation. The shadow of the ego falls too heavily on the eco. Eco, ecocide still gives egos an object to mourn, whereas climate challenges the very subject-object relation. The word climate in the expression climate change conveys the sense of determining the very conditions of the field in which events transpire, while also remaining amorphous, unstable, fluid, and inaccessible to precise description. Climate change is a pleonasm because climate is change. The problem now for humans is that the acceleration of that change has undermined the fundamental possibility of establishing a relation to the external world as that world has become fundamentally too unstable. The term climate has also entered the popular lexicon to describe effects in systems apparently unrelated to the ecosphere. These days, for example, one speaks about manifestations of systemic racism and sexism in terms of the climate of a given institution or place of work. This term, climate, thereby joins a host of several other words, such as existential threat and unprecedented, that simultaneously evoke and displace anxiety about environmental changes by transferring them to a context of political and or social conflict. Thus, for example, um, I was surprised at how often during the last election, the media used the term existential threat incessantly to describe the fears associated with the prospect that if elected, a candidate from the opposing party would annihilate life as we know it. And while it is true that some of those fears may not have been entirely unfounded, it is nonetheless also striking 
that despite the fact that climate change does indeed pose a clear and present existential threat to life as we know it, the term is never or almost never used in that context. In similar fashion, the unavoidable ubiquitous current use of the word unprecedented is itself a condensation, displacement, and denial of climate change. Whether used in the political realm or in terms of so-called natural disasters, fires, floods, etc., the term unprecedented both implicitly always disavows any knowledge of why the particular event in question ruptures temporal and historical con continuity and attempts to restore narrative continuity by replacing that event back into a linear causal teleological narrative. Climate change, as I'm invoking it here, challenges all of these descriptive models and narrative structures. The dizzying and vertiginous range of consequences resulting from climate change destabilize the interdependent interactions among virtually every system in the world by producing new configurations of contingency and causality that make the external world newly unknowable, unstable, and unmanageable. Fires and floods produce homelessness, migration, disease, famine, etc. And while this was always the case, the acceleration of those changes causes an increasing proliferation of variables, which then cascade into potentially new catastrophes. The global pandemic of the coronavirus, for example, continues to generate myriad cascading political economic sub-events. And while global pandemics could and did occur in earlier times, the likelihood of increasing new pa pandemics becomes infinitely not only more probable, but also um, unmanageable, potentially unmanageable. Moreover, pandemics are only one possible consequence of a myriad of potential systemic collapses. The point here is not merely that each individual event is catastrophic, but rather that the catastrophes in question pose an unbearable threat to the psyche because they are increasingly unpredictable, unknowable, and incalculable. Put another way, external reality can no longer provide an external bulwark to the psyche when the real world has become ungrounded. More problematically still, even if by some stroke of magic, all nation states, corporations, and individuals could be convinced to commit to collective action combating climate change tomorrow, and what a wonderful and magnificent fairy tale that would be, those efforts, however urgently needed, would not, I believe, either succeed in repairing the damage that has been done to the planet or alleviate the psychic effects of that damage. The omnipresent specter of climate change and global warming cannot be processed by individual psyches because there is little that individual people can do to stop the devastation that hovers on the horizon. Quotidian sanity requires that we deny the magnitude of that devastation. Um, and in the case of climate change, denial of reality only accelerates and exacerbates the very reality that it aims to deny. In On Transience, another short essay written during the First World War, 
Freud conjures up a scenario of total annihilation of life on earth to make the point that from the perspective of the psyche, the actual prospect that the world might really come to an end does not in and of itself constitute a threat. He writes, a geological epoch may even arrive when all animate life on earth ceases, but since the value of all this beauty and perfection is determined only by its significance for our own emotional lives, it has no need to survive us and is therefore independent of absolute duration." Unquote. In this scenario, Freud argues that we are able to contemplate the future destruction of the world without distress because that future eventuality has no reality or meaning for our present emotional life. But Freud also suggests that the capacity to remain indifferent to that doomsday vision requires that the event in question be radically external to us, beyond our control, and unrelated to any specific desires or actions that we may have taken or failed to take in the past. Later in that same essay, Freud contrasts the psychic equanimity, um, this psychic equanimity, to the melancholia exhibited by his poet friend who is unable to enjoy beauty because it is doomed to fade. For Freud, the poet's inability to take pleasure in the beauty of the present, present moment indicates that he is actually suffering from a pre-existing loss that was not mourned. The poet's melancholic response signals that a work of mourning has not been done. If we now turn our attention back to climate change, the threat to the psyche manifies, manifests most explicitly as anxiety as well as grief and denial. The prevalence of anxiety associated with climate change registers a traumatic return of disavowed and unmourned past losses that were not consciously registered as events as they were occurring. In common parlance, the term climate change denial refers to a dominant group of conservative politicians, corporations, and industries that refuse to admit the scientific evidence that establishes the factual basis of climate change. According to a recent New York Times information fact sheet about climate change, the cause for climate change denial is, they say, ideology. And they describe this ideology as follows. Instead of negotiating over climate change policies and trying to make them more market-oriented, some political conservatives have taken the approach of blocking them by trying to undermine the science. And while I wanna make it absolutely clear that I am in no way defending or condoning this cynical and reprehensible capitalistic refusal to accept the reality of climate change in the interest of exploitation, greed, and profit, I'm also suggesting that in this very same fact sheet, the Times, as well as most other popular current discourses about climate change, is itself not immune from climate change denial, even if that denial takes a very different form and has other consequences. The very New York Times fact sheet that claims to propose to give clear answers to basic questions about climate change also participates in denying reality by implying that the ongoing traumatic effects of climate change can still be mitigated and overcome via scientific rationality, information sharing, and participation in existing political systems. In response to the question, are there any realistic solutions to the problem? The Times 
answers that, quote, society has put off action for so long that the risks are now severe, scientists say, but it is not too late to act. The warming will slow to a potentially manageable pace only when human emissions are reduced to zero. The good news is that they are now falling in many countries as a result of programs like fuel economy standards for cars, stricter building codes and emissions limits for power plants, but experts say the energy transition needs to speed up drastically to head off the worst effects of climate change." Unquote. The possibility of the future that is here conjured up is depicted as attainable as long as human emissions are reduced to zero. And despite alluding to unspecified risks and rates of warming, the future is offered up like an ecstatic homeostatic nirvana principle that can only be attained when all human emissions are reduced to zero. The dubious realistic goal of zero emissions pervades almost all popular discussions of climate change sol solutions. Humans live by producing emissions, however, and it is hard to imagine what human life with zero emissions would look like or how we would arrive at that point, even if we were only talking about cars and buildings and power plants and not about any of the many other ways humans consume energy and excrete waste. The optimal scenario that is proposed here, attaining the nirvana principle of zero emissions, relies upon a basic act of dissociation. The nefarious effects of one specific polluting, polluting agent, car emissions, is disengaged from its position within the entire ecosystem of human and non-human agents. The narrative that this dissociation produces is one in which nothing else in the world is happening during the time that it will take for everyone to act together so that we can reduce our collective human emissions to zero. According to this narrative, time does not pass while we get our act together to act together to produce zero emissions in the name of the future. There are no catastrophic events in the meantime, no other surprises, nothing that would interrupt our aim at a projected future target of zero human emissions. The image of future survival here looks a lot like living death. Likewise, it's important to recall that the very concept of the carbon footprint was invented by the fossil fuel industry as a way of displacing responsibility for combating global warming, warming onto individuals. And popular culture is full of stories advocating personal responsibility for climate change. And, and significant swathes of particularly privileged individuals have eagerly embraced composting, recycling, alternative energy, and transportation methods as they seek to do their part, and I guess I should say our part, because I'm one of those people, to combat climate change. And however laudable these actions may be, however, they are primarily ways of warding off anxiety and managing feelings of guilt and helplessness. These kinds of actions almost always invariably bear the mark of wealth and privilege. People with money to burn buy electric cars and invest in solar panels. And the media is full of heartwarming stories of heroically meaningful individual acts by individual people. For example, on February 15th, just last week, 2021, I opened the New York Times and read the following headline, leftovers may be saving the planet. 
and the author of this absurdly wishful personal essay relates that the sight of her daughter, um, the sight, did I lose? Hang on everybody, I lost my own. Uh, I'm viewing somebody else's screen rather than my own text and I don't know what happened. Did somebody else um, share their screen? And could they stop doing that? Someone called Jocelyn. And this is, okay, can I go on? For example, on February 15th, 2021, I opened the New York Times and read the following headline, leftovers may be saving the planet. And the author of this absurdly wishful personal essay relates that the sight of her daughter scrounging for the last sprig of parsley in the back of the vegetable drawer of her refrigerator gives her hope for the future. Buoyed by the prospect of transitioning to green chemistry that is restricting manufacture to producing only goods that can be broken down and destroyed, she imagines that, quote, maybe we can teach new microorganisms to love the taste of old plastic. Maybe we can, before we even begin to cook, imagine what kind of garbage we're leaving behind and make the goal be no garbage left behind at all. What kind of narrative fantasy is this? This woman who confesses in her essay that she still eats chicken and uses plastic Tupperware but aspires to trade in her plastic for glass finds planetary salvation in her middle school daughter's search for lost parsley because she imagines that it is a harbinger of an ideal world of zero emissions, a world with no leftovers, no remainders, no waste, no garbage left behind at all. For the privileged, it seems that the future is a place where no one ever shits. Maybe we can, she says. Maybe we can can the can. The poor and the disenfranchised, however, are always left in the position to clean up the shit or risk being shat out of the system as human leftovers. We don't know much about the precise suffering that we're in for, but what we do know is that that suffering will not be borne equally by all. The unbearable reality of climate change is that it exposes the psyche to a primordial tear in reality itself. The inexorably real threat of climate change threatens the psyche's ability to establish a rational relation to reality. Therefore, there is no merely sane relation to climate change. It has made us crazy and will make us crazy. Denial is our only defense, but it is also our undoing. There is no outside to denial. There are only different forms of denial that will have different side effects and unintended consequences. Some of the most well-meaning forms of denial may turn out to be the most insidious as they attempt to rationalize, humanize, and normalize actions and events that ought to force us to reckon with what we cannot bear to know. For example, the idolization of Greta Thunberg reinforces fantasies of individual sovereignty. The collective fantasy that the heroic actions of this virginal teenage young woman will save the world because like Antigone, she stands up to sovereign authority by speaking truth to power might feel good, but I'm not sure exactly how the truth she embodies translates into tolerating life under climate change. Under, unlike other disasters and calamities that have affected humans, 
and that's war, genocide, nuclear destruction, pandemics, and despotism. Climate change presents unique challenges to the human psyche as it engages traumatic temporality on a global scale. Humans are responsible for causing damage that humans cannot repair. What is done cannot be undone. And it is this double position we are simultaneously responsible for ongoing crimes against the primordial other, the earth, and rendered helpless by what we have done that is so unbearable. Because it is already too late to prevent irreparable damage to the earth and to the ecosystem in which we live, the very recognition of climate tests the subject's relation to both time and reality. The super rich are planning their exit strategies like there is no tomorrow. And while the rest of us starve, fight, flight, and perish, they're planning on moving to Mars. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanna say that for those of you who, um, oh look, you have a comment, amen on the Greta note. <laughs> Um, I just want to say before we move on that if anyone knows Alyssa's work on traumatic temporality and on traumatic trauma in general, you'll, you, you would see that this is very much a part of her thinking, which um, I hope we can get back to in the discussion. Um, we're going to move on to uh, Clint Burnham, David Lichtenstein, and Patricia Garavici. I want to introduce them briefly. Um, we're very happy to have Clint here, who um, Alyssa, David, and I just met, and it was at Patricia's invitation because she had known Clint from before. Um, he was born in Comox, British Columbia, which is on the traditional t territory of the, how do you say it, Clint? Comox, uh, Comox. First, Comox First Nation, centered historically on Kaniswan. Uh, did I say that right? Yep, yep, okay. keep going. He is professor and chair of the graduate program, Department of English, Simon Fraser University, and works on psychoanalysis, Marxist theory, indigenous literature, and digital culture. His most recent book is Does the Internet Have an Unconscious, Slavoj Zizek and Digital Culture? And importantly, he'll tell us about it in 2021. He has a book forthcoming called The Con and the Environment. Um, David Lichtenstein, who many here know, is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City, faculty member at NYU Postdoc, the Institute for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, CUNY's doctoral program, The New School, and IFTAR. He's also the editor of the book, The Lacan Tradition, and teaches an independent course titled The Clinical Implications of the Work of Jacques Lacan. Um, he is the founding editor of Division Review, a, a co-founder of Opera Coup Psychoanalytic Association and a participant at Dessenbehagen. And finally, Patricia Garavici is a psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor, a recipient of the Sigourney Award very recently. She's the co-founder of the Phil Philadelphia Lacan Group, an honorary member at IPTAR and a founding member of Das Unbehagen. Her books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome, Please Select Your, Gen Your Gender and Transgender Psychoanalysis, a Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference. Um, thank you, all of you, and we really look forward to your comments. We're going to start with Clint. I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Great. Uh, thanks, Jameson. And it's great to, uh, to be here today in New York, um, and uh, also to, uh, to have a chance to respond to uh, uh, Alyssa Martyr's work, which is uh, really quite exciting. Uh, there was two little brief epigraphs or whatever I wanted to begin with. One is from, I don't know who he is really, I just know him through social media, Andre Vantino in uh, Edinburgh, I believe, uh, only Lacanians can explain our current crisis. 
Um, and then just riffing off of what two things Alyssa said just towards the end there, uh, I wonder if zero waste is the new zero tolerance. So you're zero waste for whom? Um, so three reasons for the current moment and three possible responses. Three reasons I'd like to talk about, uh, um, sort of in boldface, decline of the big other, uh, thinking about media ecology and the unthinkability of death. Climate denial, as Alyssa Martyr clearly shows in her references to the New York Times uh, information sheets, uh, involves different kinds of climate denial. We can think then of the Lacanian theory of the decline of the big other or the decline of symbolic efficacy or just good old postmodern relativism, you know, Trump as postmodernism uh, 2.0. Uh, for example, I mean, we, we can, there's obviously a lot of work that's been done on this, but I think of Oreskes and Conway's book, A Merchants of Doubt, about uh, how scientists moved from uh, uh, fact shifting on tobacco to uh, fact shifting on global, global warming, or even um, uh, the sort of belief in science that comes to us from elite media, and this is again from the New York Times, you can't really argue with MIT scientists, well you can, but you probably lose which presumes that experts in their field are also good at constructing arguments for non-scientists. A second argument has to do more specifically with media ecology. Um, I was just looking at uh, Lacan seminar 13. It's just multi-chapter sort of thing on Velasquez's um, Las Meninas, where he finishes, oddly enough, talking about the TV screen as object PTR. And so the saturation of our life worlds, on the one hand, in a very dialectical fashion, on the one hand with the big screen TVs that are showing news 24-7 uh, in our living rooms, our kitchens, our bedrooms, and so on, on the one hand, and the extimate social media qua smartphones, which means on the one hand we have the gaze and the gaze of the other, and then we have our own empty speech, our endless comments and blogatariat that's going on. Um, a third, and uh, I'll get a bit more into this in terms of why we are where we are now, um, and unthink the unthinkability of death. And here we might want to consider, you know, Zizek talks about this in less than nothing, Freud's for vers, uh, the four German words, verberfung or foreclosure, uh, verdrängung or repression, verneinung or denial, and verlugnung or disavowal, these different gradations of denial, of negation, uh, of not wanting to think about it. Uh, again, Alyssa Marta gives a great example with that Freud joke, the husband who says, if one of us two dies, I shall move to Paris. Um, and she also makes a crucial distinction between the measurable, but still I would argue in some kind of way, uh, sublime data of climate crisis, changes in greenhouse gases can be measured, or rates of extinction. But even there, think of the ice albedo effect or the melting uh, polar ice caps and the reflecting less of the sun. David Wallace Wells tells us is not adequately covered in the IPCC report. So even there, and this is something that uh, Catherine Hayo uh, in all our discussion of climate weirding, says such reports regularly underplay the disaster. Uh, because, and this is her own scientific trust in numbers, uh, and this sort of sp speaks to uh, Alyssa's thing on whether or not we can measure our own lack of knowledge. Uh, um, Heho claims scientists have to be 99% or 99.9% .9 certain. And I have no idea how you measure certainty to that degree of, uh, of numbers. Um, but also uh, around this, and this again speaks to the sublime or, or to numbers, 
Freud likes to quote, uh, well, he likes to quote Shakespeare a lot, but he likes to quote Falstaff from uh, Shakespeare's uh, Henry IV, part one, where he says, reasons are as plentiful as blackberries. So there are all kinds of reasons that are offered to us, and yet we still have psychic uh, defenses against those. Um, finally, so then, or on the other hand, three responses then. If those are three reasons why we are here now and thinking with uh, Oravec, uh, Elisa Martyr, um, three responses I would think of. One is to think about uh, the rhetoric or, or dream logic of, of politicians. A second is to engage in terrorism. <laughs> A third is, uh, would be, uh, again, thinking about what uh, Alicia Mater does around uh, the terms climate itself. We might think of climate, climate, or again, hey-ho's uh, climate weirding. So in terms of analysis of rhetoric, or rhetoric as a kind of weaponized dream logic, and this is from another talk of Alyssa's on uh, Donald Trump, where she talks about his phrase, you won't believe, uh, it gives a great, a great uh, uh, engaging of that. Or think of Texas Governor Greg Abbott this week and his sort of denial around, uh, you know, he first tried to do this kind of distraction run uh, to say, this is what the Green New Deal will lead us to in terms of the Texas uh, uh, um, disaster with the, with the winter storm this week. Um, and the two other thinkers who think along these terms in terms of uh, uh, thinking about uh, the rhetoric of politicians. Of course, many of us may know the Jennifer Marchicha book, uh, Demagogue for President, and Callum Matheson talks about this rhetoric from a more Lacanian point of view. A second perspective or a second strategy would be armed struggle or terrorism. In the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson's latest novel, Ministry for the Future, there's kind of like a, a black ops wing of this uh, 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 UN type um, uh, organization that carries out uh, attacks on um, private jets and so on, or has, uh, you know, of course, Kim Stanley Robinson has all kinds of uh, futuristic uh, scientific devices, but all these drones that attack things and so on. So terrorism in a certain kind of way. Um, and then finally, uh, more conceptual. And here I was thinking of how uh, Alyssa Martyr, again, when she's riffing on these different meanings of climate, and I like that sort of feminist turn to thinking of what the climate of an institution is uh, around sexual harassment. And what we might call climate, climate, that is to say, climate itself as a conceptual climate, but also climate weirding or the uncanny. And finally, I would make an argument uh, or a plea for a climate Klein or a climate Klein bottle, something in which the inside of the uh, climate is also the outside of the climate at the same time. Finally, because I was asked to by uh, the, the conveners of, of today's talk, I'll just make a plug for uh, a book that I've co-edited with Paul Kingsbury coming out this spring from Paul Grave called Lacan and the Environment. Uh, 15 contributors, including some people who are here today, like Cindy Zyher, Alma Krillick, uh, Sasha Langford, uh, Todd McGowan, and Matthew Fleece-Fader with some great discussions of what psychoanalysis can bring to thinking about the environment. Thank you. Thank you, Clint. It's it's interesting because your 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 three strategies are so fragile in response. Well, maybe not the terrorism, but I like that. I mean, I like the idea of playing with the signifier, and um, we'll have to come back to thinking about the solutions. Um, David, shall we turn to you? Uh, yes. Let me. Uh, you can hear me. Uh, thank yes. you very much, Jameson. Uh, thank you very much, Alyssa, for your paper and Clint for your comments. 
Uh, I don't have any previously prepared remarks, so I'm going to respond to uh, the paper and to Clint's comments um, and work my way into it. So bear with me if it takes a moment to get going. Um, the certainly one question uh, that Alyssa poses for us is the question about uh, our, our function as political subjects and as psychoanalysts. Uh, is there some role that we as psychoanalysts play in relation to what one could easily say is a political question? Uh, how do we get people in power to think differently about the organization of resources. It's not exactly a psychoanalytic question. Uh, it's a very, very important question. And the question would then follow, is there some way that we as psychoanalysts can inform that political endeavor? Uh, uh, so that even functioning as citizens on the political level, do we function also as psychoanalysts in relation to that political endeavor? I think Alyssa suggests certain ways in which we do or in ways in which we might. And I think I hear her uh, paper as sort of laying down the challenge of what it is that psychoanalysts might say that could in fact uh, address the possibility of a political discourse. Um, so I'm going to take up some of those and uh, uh, respond to some of those points. For, for one, I was struck by um, the, how Alyssa started with this discussion about Freud's paper from 1915, which was written at the very beginning, I think six months into the First World War, thoughts on, uh, uh, on war and death. Uh, because some years later, of course, is when he talks about uh, the death drive. And in the death drive is a concept which uh, stands in opposition to the very thing that he says in the paper uh, about the, the, the absence of any instinctual uh, meaning of death, uh, you know, in the joke about the uh, husband who assumes he'll be the one in Paris. Uh, in the death drive, of course, it's exactly the reverse, that there is a fundamental uh, drive-related tendency to uh, uh, move towards one's own death, towards one's own destruction, a kind of uh, inherent suicidal inclination to the human psyche. Uh, and inherent in the sense that linked fundamentally to the very structure of the drive. Uh, there is a tendency towards a kind of death of, this, of the subject. Um, this change in Freud or this, con this, this conflict in Freud, this struggle that Freud has about the relationship to death, I think is very important. Uh, I think whenever Freud contradicts himself, which he does, as we all know, all over the place, each time he contradicts himself, we as psychoanalysts pay attention and say, okay, there's a question here that Freud himself hasn't quite worked out. And he's 
arguing both sides. And it's where more work needs to be done. And I think that the relation to death and particularly the relation to self-inflicted death uh, is one of those areas uh, where work needs to be done. And this is a kind of work which is directly related to the question of the climate. When Alyssa objects to the term ecocide or ecocide, right? I mean, the side, of course, C-I-D-E is the, the killing part. Uh, but there's a kind of confusion that I find in Alyssa's relation to the question of what it is that's being killed. Because ecocide and geocide are two different things. Geocide would be killing the earth, right? Uh, and at times, Alyssa speaks as though that's where the violence is being done, towards the earth. The fact of the matter is that in climate change or in the environmental disaster that human beings are engaged in, the earth is in the long run indifferent. The earth is not being killed here. Uh, the earth will long exist after human beings destroy their own habitat, right? What's being killed is that rather, is one's human being's own habitat, right? And the tendency to, to destroy one's own habitat, it seems to me is a little bit closer to the kind of suicidal tendency of the death drive. Uh, it's not about simply the destruction of the other, it's about a self-destruction. And this tendency to destroy our own habitat, right? The tendency to foul our own nest, to make our own lives impossible, I think this is the thing we have to look at uh, as psychoanalysts and try to understand better what this is about. Uh, and again, it's not, and to be able, so the distinction between something like a geocide and an ecocide is an important distinction to make. To go back to my original point, if we as psychoanalysts will find a way to inform the political, because one of the things we can do to inform the political is based it on this idea of this tendency to destroy ourselves, which again is different than destroying the earth, all right? The idea that a species would destroy itself, by the way, is not particularly surprising. Uh, many, many species destroy their own habitats. Uh, to, this is simply to draw a link from nature. Uh, I'm not, particularly convinced that nature is a very useful uh, point of reference in understanding human psyche. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Lorraine Dastin called Against Nature, which is uh, the argument is that you can use nature uh, as an ideal category to argue for practically anything because nature in its way is so complex and so indifferent to human intentions, that uh, the romantic idea that we could use the natural as a way of guiding our lives is, is, is a complete illusion, right? Uh, so this idea um, that, that, that uh, like other species, but in some way unlike other species, because of this human, uh, that the human drive, the human death drive is not, as, as Freud 
at times suggested an expression of a natural tendency. It's a distinctly human tendency to destroy ourselves in a particular way. Uh, and I think that unless we, uh, psychoanalysts, continue to uh, explore and elaborate what that tendency is to destroy ourselves, to destroy our habitat, uh, uh, I don't think we, I think, put it the other way around, I think to the extent that we can continue to explore that and, and, and uh, know more about that, we may have something to say in the realm of the political. We may. Uh, you know, I'm not any more optimistic than uh, Alyssa about the political possibilities of stopping what is in fact, uh, you know, a mass uh, uh, social phenomenon which is already uh, causing tremendous uh, disruption to our habitat and in a way that, that uh, uh, we have very little chance of, of altering. Uh, but if we are going to be able to address it, I do think one of the places we have to look is to this relationship to death. Um, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about a, a particular, there's a moment in uh, when, uh, an essay by Conrad, Joseph Conrad, where he's talking about uh, his relationship to the sea. And uh, he says that... Uh, there are those who, something's happened. Can you all see me? I've lost the uh, image, there it is. Um, he's talking about how people who don't spend a lot of time on the sea, imagine that sailors love the sea. Uh, they go to the sea, they love it, they think it's a wonderful. He says, this nothing could be further from the truth. He said, if you're a sailor, what you do, and if you survive as a sailor, is you're, you respect the sea, you're impressed by the sea, uh, you recognize the power of the sea, but you don't love the sea. One thing you recognize is that the sea is entirely indifferent to you and entirely indifferent to human life. And I think this is one of the things that, that uh, again, uh, that I want to reiterate is, is the indifference of the earth about human endeavor. Um, maybe I'll stop there. All right. Thank you, David. Um, Patricia, do you want to follow up? I, David, you're talking about what the psychoanalyst has to um, contribute. I want to. I also want to ask about anality, especially because I saw many people on the screen laugh when Alyssa brought up <laughs> the leaving no shit behind. So maybe we'll have to come back to anality. But Patricia. Thank you. Can you hear me well? Uh, I will start my response to Elisa's wonderful paper uh, uh, by quoting uh, a meditation of uh, uh, Werner Herzog, the German director. Uh, and uh, this I found in a documentary that was uh, uh, done during the very troubled production of the movie Fiscaraldo from 1982. Uh, this movie involved hauling a 320 ton steamship up a steep hill in the Amazon basin, another Amazon, the 
and also challenging one, uh, leading to three injuries, two accidental plane crashes, tensions with the indigenous population who initially collaborated with Herzog, but at some point it, there were a lot of uh, difficulties and they ended up burning down the movie set and injuring one actor with an arrow on the neck. And also among the many uh, disasters that were entailing this uh, uh, production uh, in, in a very challenging natural setting uh, was that one local Peruvian logger uh, had to sever his own food with a chainsaw to prevent the spread of venom. Uh, he had bitten by a snake and, and that's the only way he managed to save his life. Uh, in that documentary, Herso has certain comments of nature that I think is, uh, I will uh, quote briefly. And, and this is what he says. Nature is full of obscenity. Nature here is vile and based. I wouldn't see anything erotic here. He was uh, discussing with Klaus Kinski, so that natural setting as erotic, he says, uh, Herzog. I see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing as just rotting away. Of course, there is a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they sing, they just screech in pain. Later on in the documentary, he says, taking a close look at what's around here, there is some sort of harmony it is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, ha, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, a cheap novel. We have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication, overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. Even the stars up here in the sky look like a mess. There is no harmony in the universe. We have to, be, to get acquainted to the idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I say this, I say this in full admiration for the jungle. It is not that I hate it, I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment." End of the quote. So Herzog is here, uh, implying maybe in the face of nature's fornication that there is no sexual relation, that there is this obscene abundance of the Amazonian jungle, a faulty excess, and clearly he adopts a romantic position Nature is an outside, a limit to the omnipotence of the subject that is humble, facing the uh, omnipotence of nature that renders humans uh, um, humble and the humility of castration, we may say, cutting one's food to survive. And this uh, feeling overpowered by nature, we are in all facing nature in this uh, uh, confrontation with the sublime that is pleasure and unpleasurable. But uh, I prefer to, rather than following uh, Herzog's idea of awe, uh, note this last sentence in, in the statement I, I, I quote earlier on that he claims that he's very much in love with nature and his love with the jungle. And uh, maybe this love, could that love be operating 
perhaps under uh, the premise of denial. Uh, maybe, I don't know if it's climate denial, but the mechanism of denial. And uh, in, in stimulated by uh, Elisa's uh, reflections, I revisited Freud's text of 1925 on negation, uh, where he uh, tell us that uh, negation is very interesting because uh, according to Freud, in negation, we take cognizance of what's repressed. If there is a lifting of repression, Freud says, but of course, uh, no, what doesn't happen is the acceptance of what is repressed. Uh, that there is an intellectual function that is separated from the affective process. And, uh, and uh, in a way we negate, making a judgment that is uh, something I'm, I'm negating because this is something we, we would prefer to repress. Uh, and, and, and Freud says something that I found very intriguing. He says, a negative judgment is the intellectual substitute for repression. It is a no that is the hallmark of repression, a sort of, he says, certificate of origin, like, let us say, made in Germany. And, uh, and uh, continues elaborating on negation as it's uh, this the sort of very primal mechanism of uh, what is good, I introject, what is bad, I spit it out. And uh, in a way, what is bad, uh, what is alien to the ego, uh, and the external in the beginning appear in the elaboration of Freud as identical. Uh, another, I think, here important thing in terms of a, a negation is that Freud says that negation is the successor to expulsion and belongs to the instinct of destruction, to echo on, on what David was saying about the death drive. And uh, so maybe here the, the question is, what is that uh, ultimately we would be uh, negating? Uh, and this brings me to an association with a poem by Paul Celan's Death Fugue, uh, in which he says in one line, death is a master from Deutschland, death is a master from Germany. So may I ask, uh, uh, maybe allowing myself to make this statement as the a daughter of a, a Holocaust survivor, uh, is uh, ecocide, is climate change on par with the Holocaust. Holocaust, can we put together this ecological catastrophe for which we cannot name a perpetrator, something that we could compare in the same terms? Uh, and uh, maybe this brings me to an issue of uh, things we need to repress, perhaps to go on living. And I would like uh, to mention the, the work of Emanuele Cochia in uh, The Life of Plants, in which he talks about something being repressed, that we have repressed uh, the importance, the role of plants in what he calls the atmosphere. He uh, makes a parallel uh, between uh, early life, we could suppose that we were swimming in water, and now we are swimming in what he calls the atmosphere uh, that is a uh, this uh, space in which we are all breathing, the, and, and sort of aerial reality. And, and he gives us a, a different um, impression of what we may call nature. Nature is what allows things to be. 
nature, a nature that is eating itself constantly in a constant interaction, a, a nature that is constantly breathing, releasing gases and recycle them. And, and animals are eating plants, plants are uh, growing and, and, and recycling the air we breathe, and, and humans are part of this atmosphere. And that in a way the, the outer crust of the, the geo, the earth, is contains humans as well, that there is no clear separation. And, and this world we are in is the world of the breath of the living. And, and Koche proposes plants as a sort of kept secret uh, of what he calls climate. Uh, so proposing this idea of uh, the importance of plants and area life, plants that um, allow us allow, allows all living beings to breathe, uh, I would conclude with maybe posing the question, uh, if there is something specific, since the, the, the theme of discussion today is psychoanalysis and ecocide or psychoanalysis and climate change, uh, could we uh, say something from a psychoanalytic perspective that could be the equivalent of photosynthesis? Could we find in the unconscious a sort of chlorophyll that could allow us to reverse this exchange of uh, toxic gases. And with that, I'll, I'll stop. Can I respond? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, if you don't mind. First, thank, thanks to all three of you. And, um, and I want to first push back to David because um, I, well, I agree with what you say conceptually, but it's not what I was saying. So I want to explain why. So I think, first of all, I agree with you um, that, um, about what you said about the death drive. But I think that my, the reason I was going to those, let me just see how I can say this. Um, I think you misheard a place that I was saying about the ego side and the eco side because partly what I was trying to argue um, was that there was a kind of death drive in here. The big place where I feel like we don't agree, or you didn't hear me, is that you know in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, when Freud introduces the death drive, he, he says that the point of the death drive is that humans want to drive and die in their own fashion. So it's it's in its own way, it's um, it's a detour on the way of death, and the death drive. It's 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 an expression of a kind of sovereignty, even if it's a suicidal sovereignty. Or suicide is also a kind of um, expression of the ego. And and really, what I wanted to get at is the absence of the object and the absence of the ego. That, that the central point I was trying to make is that climate change produces a new form of crazy because it does something to the individual, it's not available to the individual psyche and the individual psyche still needs to try to use, I mean, we are wired the way that we are, we are but that it's the, it's, it's the, it's that there is no suicidal gesture that one can even take enough charge of because what I was trying to get at um, was 
the, the complexity of the systemic arrangements so that there is no kind of clear cause and effect. Uh, one can't even distinguish what is happening between weather systems to human-made organisms. So the very figure of fouling one's own nest, which as you say, is, is what other animals do. It's what every ecosystem can sometimes evolved to the place where it can no longer survive and forests, you know, have little bushes that then get, can't have light in the photosynthesis and we'll get to that. Um, so other ecosystems, but humans with a death drive, you know, um, have particular ways of, of, of dealing with that or, or, or functions of that fouling our own nest. I was trying to get at something else, which is, um, it, it really feels to me like something about this phenomenon and it's not the massiveness of it. It's the, it's the, it's the relationship between contingency, as I said, so that every catastrophe can always have subcatastrophes. There's no one event. There's no one thing that I'm doing. And, and, and so, like even if we if we take um, if we take just the coronavirus, the event, you know, it's because of climate change somewhere. So because of what people did, that maybe there was a bat that maybe you know put this virus in that then produced a whole series of things that's then going to produce homelessness, job loss, migration, racism, and so the way that all of those systems put together. Um, isn't even satisfying, I can't explain, the death drive in the way that we're accustomed to thinking of the death drive. So there may be a death drive, but that death drive isn't functioning that way. And, and this brings me to a point I wanted to say to all of you, which is really what I'm looking for is a new word for negation. So Clint brought up the three terms that Freud uses, and he uses Verleugnung, Verneinung, and Verdrängen. So repression, disavowal, foreclosure, you know, verneinung, negation, um, verleugnung, disavowal, and verdrängen, repression. And Patricia was talking about repression. And, you know, one of those, um, verleugnung, is the, is the one that Lacan refers to as foreclosure, foreclosure. So it's a kind of splitting. It's the one where je sais bien mais quand même, I know, but I don't know. And, um, I think we even need a new one. So this is partly what I wanted to say to Patricia is that the story of made in Germany or the story of repression that goes to negation, if we were still dealing with, with, with I, I wanna say old fashioned negations, this would not be so, this, the, the fracture of the psychic distress would not be so extreme. And the reason I went to those early Freud texts was, and, and the reason I actually added the paragraph about on transience is, um, which is really about the indifference of nature too. So I agree with everything that you were saying about the indifference of nature, um, is that, you know, and, and is that the question of what the threat is for the psyche is new. That's really the main point of what I wanted to say is that we're dealing with a different kind of psychic threat. And, and that I do, and here, Patricia, I, I don't think climate change, how can I put this? I, I wouldn't rank it, 
I wouldn't rank it as worse than the Holocaust. The Holocaust is horrific. It was awful. You have generations. I mean, so it's not on a scale of what's better or for worse. But I actually think that for humans, the way that we have been socialized, how we have our organizations, there's something about, as I said, this, this both determinant and random and collective and uncontrollable set of unpredictable aspects to climate change that make it unthinkable in a different way. That, that it's a new unthinkability is what I'm trying to add, argue for. And a new temporality that, you know, just like, you know, Freud gave us neurosis, psychosis, perversion as different uh, psychic um, subjective responses, as it were, toward problems tolerating life or dealing with reality. I'm arguing that the, the particular concatenation of all of this as it becomes systemic, because for me, it, the reason I'm not just talking about death drive is that everything I'm talking about is cascading and interrelated systemic and systems that, that, in, that are engaged with other systems in ways that we can't even take on. It's huge. And I had a fantasy when I was writing, oh, when I was thinking about this, that I wanted to come up with a new term actually inspired by Jameson and Marcus from an earlier conversation of an, um, of, of an algo, um, like of an algo ego, like a, a, an, an algo ego, algo derived from algorithms, because that's what we are now. We're, and, and I'm not sure uh, if, you're, if you're just one tiny little bit in a collective algorithm that you have the same death drive. Having said this, and I'll stop here, um, I did take a, um, a sentence out of my paper when I was talking about looking at the symptoms that I think are specific to this new form of crazy. So the form of, a new form of anxiety, helplessness, disavowal or avoidance. Um, and I add, had a sentence saying, this is a task for psychoanalysis. So I do think that there is a task for psych psychoanalysis here. And part of that task is to recognize the displacements and to, I mean, look at what's manifesting. And Patricia, I sort of love your idea of trying to do a tra transvaluation of values and come up with like chlorophyll or, or something about this. And there may be some psychic resource that you know we've always had. I'm not saying humans are, are, are changing, but it's as if different aspects of psychic organizations are called for in different times. And maybe there is a recycling chlorophyllic one, which will be um, a, a more, a, a less bad form of denial that will help us. And on that, I'll just stop. Thank you. David, Patricia, did you wanna respond or should we move to discussion? Clint? Yeah, discussion would be good. Yeah, yeah, why don't we move on with a lot of yeah. people, I'm sure, yeah. things they want to say, yeah. I, 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 I can't get out of my mind the kind of references to shit and zero waste and <laughs> no shit left behind. Um, and I was recently studying 
Lacan on the anal object in his seminar. Jameson, I actually put that in for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just for me. Um, I, was, I was studying Lacan on the anal object in the seminar on anxiety. And um, one, he brings up the fact that animals foul their nest, but they, they do it at the limit of what is me and not me to mark that territory, which he says is important to take into consideration. The other thing that he says is that after the the oral object, he says, is not really an object, which I thought was very important because you often think of the breast or think of the milk, but he says it's not an object. He said, you, you can't, you don't know where to locate it in the maternal body. And what's important about anality is that the subject produces the object, right? The feces is the gift or whatever, um, but also themselves to the other's demand. And he says, without this, they wouldn't understand the object. The problem is that they get lost. They get really lost in this object that they produce and that they, that they can't find anymore the subjectivity and desire with respect to the object that they then create the kind of intimations of. And I started to think about Lacanian analysis, which was developed <laughs> to deal with obsessionality, which is very, very difficult to deal with. And this producing of shit. And Lacan says, you know, you, you have to be really careful as an analyst because the obsessional will make you eat their shit and you can't stop them. Um, and so I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but it, it seemed important, one, that it was a necessity that the human wrestle with the object because of a terror of objectlessness and the difficulties of orality, the voraciousness of orality. Um, but at the same time that it's a, it's a trap and it's a, it's a maze that's very hard to get out of. Um, so something of, of that came to mind. I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to bring that up. Um, there were comments in the, in the thread that I just want to sort of pose to Alyssa. They were asking you to say more about Antigone and Greta Thunberg. Um, that was one comment. And a second comment was about um, disavowal on the part of the left who likes to paint a doomsday portrait, um, but then wave their hands at Green New Deal and say that it's impossible to do. Is this disavowal? Is this denial? Um, and a second and a third question about ethical discourse and circumnavigating the political from the analyst chair. Can't we, can't we do all these things at once? I'm sorry if I didn't summarize your questions completely, but I wanted to bring them up in the comment box. And anyone else who, has a, who wants to make a comment can use the raise their hand function. Um, let me just say, um, all of this kind of began for me, um, well, in one weird way, all of this began for me with, an, with Greta Thunberg and Antigone. I was writing on Antigone and I, I wasn't, and I made the association, um, and, but the piece I was writing about Antigone, which is coming out is called Anti-Antigone. <laughs> and it actually, um, and Antigone means against generation. And so what I was doing was being suspicious against birth and Antigone as a kind of, um, so I was, I was questioning why Antigone was the only figure, only feminine figure that was loved and adored by the male philosophical tradition. And um, one thing I came up with was that Antigone um, is a phallic virgin and that the phallic virgin um, and, and, and that there is a, was a kind of fantasy of her power that was more sovereign than the sovereign and that it was really important that she was a virgin. 
and that it's that sense of a kind of passionate investment. And I should also say here that part of the reason I wrote this was as a rebuttal of Lacan's reading of Antigone, which I think is misogynistic and fetishistic and is actually a phallic fantasy of that between two deaths. So just alienated all the Lacanians in the room, which is the whole room. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so really it was that I have always been enraged by that reading of Antigone that, um, and the ethical in that way and that, you know, and that it really mattered to me. So anyway, so that started and then there's Greta and I made that association, but I wasn't alone. Half the world made that association. And I'm so, and I saw in the chat, I wasn't able to really read the chat that Matthias Frisch has written on this, but Matthias and I were exchanging our work on Antigone at the same time, he's a friend. And um, I also bought this book, which I'm gonna walk here to, um, because you gotta have the visual of Bernard Stiegler's book, Capelle-t-on um, Pensée, La Leçon de Greta Thunberg, which is an entire tome about the lesson of Greta Thunberg as Antigone, as a way of facing, you know, parasia and truth, saying truth to power. And um, so, what I was thinking was that Greta, this kind of superpower young woman, and that it really mattered that she was also on the spectrum. Like that basically, you know, the story goes, the mythical story of how Greta got into the work she was, was that she heard, you know, that, that like she had a different relation to the reality principle. When she heard that there was this horrible things going on to the climate, she couldn't understand why people were letting it go on. Denial was unavailable to her in the same way. And so that got Greta started, but her, her autism, her self-avowed autism, I mean, I don't know whether autism is the right word, but her being on the spectrum was part of her thing. And um, so again, the issue, I, I admire Greta Thunberg. I've always hesitated saying what I have to say about her because I don't want Greta to be the object of my ob objections, but there is a certain fantasy of what power and that fantasy is an overinvestment in the sovereign individual or in an individual that would be more sovereign than the sovereign. And that I think is a reaction formation. And that's what my problem with Greta is. Um, and because the whole point of everything that I was saying is that this isn't happening at the level of the individual. That, 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 indivi that that's part of the anxiety that we're dealing with is that people don't know what to do with themselves or how to act because whatever is happening is kind of non-assimilable at the level of the individual. And then I'll let other people talk. So only dealt with that one question. Hilda, did you want to say something? Hilda Fernandez. Thank you, Jameson. Uh, and thank you everyone for uh, your wonderful uh, participations and uh, words. I was thinking, um, I'm a practicing psychoanalyst in, um, uh, Vancouver, and I'm also a geographer. And I was thinking, uh, how can we think of a possible engagement in the sociopolitical with regards to uh, the climate change, following the principles that we follow in the analytic uh, session uh, and with the subject at the level of the individual psyche, which we know it's always connected to this course, 
So I was thinking, um, for example, in uh, Bruno Latour's uh, kind of uh, notion of uh, Gaia as opposed to think uh, on uh, Mother Earth, right? Um, there's an article by Lucas Paul, uh, a geographer, colleague of mine, that he works this polarity between uh, kind of Mother Earth as a phallic discourse versus Gaia as a um, kind of feminine position, because Gaia talks about the connection between nature and culture, right? Like how, how are we entwined in, in, that, in that relationship? So I was thinking that if we could aspire to think uh, this course of uh, nature, which I was trying to engage uh, in a paper that is in the collection of uh, edited by uh, Clint Burnham and Paul Kingsbury about the possibilities of engaging with the residue in nature, the residue, the garbage, the pollution, in a way that we, we could locate it. Uh, but it's, it's very disturbing in a way. It's very um, kind of uh, upsetting because it's how can we agree in channeling violence? How can we agree in channeling uh, residues, right? It's, it's very difficult to think it in the individual level, but it's, it's almost impossible to think it in, in the social because it's how, like they, they immediately the far right pick up on the question, you know? Like they know what to do with the residue. They, they just go and kind of shut the fuck up, right? Uh, but it's, it's a question that I think it's at the core and it's very disturbing and very difficult to, to put in circulation without following uh, immediately in that sort of far right. So I just wanted to make that kind of a, a reflection that your talks uh, inside. Thank you. Clint, did you wanna? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Hilda. And I wanna pick up on the question of violence, uh, of course, because I'm in favor of it, but also uh, uh, circling back through what you were saying about Mother Earth and Gaia, but also uh, Patricia's uh, provocation around uh, Earth being, or maybe it was David, Earth being uh, indifferent, nature being indifferent, um, or, or the kind of Werner uh, uh, Herzog notion that the, the jungle is this obscene place, but he loves it, but he's not sure if he should love it, and so on, or should we respect the ocean, or would we love the ocean in terms of Conrad? And I think um, the question of violence in, uh, in protecting the Earth if that's what the violence that's been called for in terms of the eco-terrorism uh, that Kim Stanley Robinson uh, writes about in his novel, uh, and of course has been going on for quite a while, um, is uh, the question are when, when we're protecting the earth, are, you know, do we view it as a child that we are protecting? Do we view it as our mother that we are protecting? And I think the, the earth may be, or nature, uh, quote unquote, may be indifferent. And nonetheless, we have these phantasmic relations uh, with it. Which are which are whether it's in you know indigenous philosophies that are that do have a kind of a pagan uh, agency or subjectivity to nature or to the earth, um, or in terms of thinking that uh, we love it and so on. And I think those questions of who is protecting whom, and um, uh, what our role is there, really are open questions. But I don't want to foreclose uh, or reject, as, as Lacan would say, the um, um, uh, the possibilities of, of violence in that regard. Syrian, you have your hand up. 
Hi, I was just wondering if any of the thanks, by the way, everybody, uh, for very engaging, if not depressing, uh, talk. Uh, I was just wondering about the recent trip to Mars and the photos that came back. If any of the speakers had maybe anything to say about that, or if it just feels kind of crazy or just inappropriate. Um, seems like a, like the last bastion of a, the idea of human progress, you know, or, or the search for life on a planet so far away when the life is being extinguished on our own, or is there anything to be said about that? That's it. I guess I would just say, um, I haven't, you know, I've just started working on this since Patricia <laughs> um, invited me to think about it, but I think if one looks around, um, those private industries, those rich people are building bunkers and they are trying to build bunkers on Mars, you know? And so um, their mode of denial is to think they really have somewhere to go. Uh, and um, while I'm, and, and I mean, I do think that that's a displacement of it. I mean, the, the renewed excitement about Mars is also a displacement of like, you yeah, know, as David Bowie put it, is there life on Mars? You know, mm. like this, it isn't working out here. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good, I mean, I think exploration is, I don't think it's all bad or all good. I just think it's kind of complicated and I'm interested in the displacements. Um, quickly about what Hilda was saying, I was very interested and it sounds great what you're doing. And I think what I was trying to imply with the, the Freud stuff at the beginning of fighting regression with regression would be something like that, would be, would be something like moving back, but not the way that Freud was arguing it in Thoughts for the Times. Two hands up, but. Yeah, I also, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, David. I just wanted to quickly just reply to the flight to Mars uh, and again, with this idea that maybe psychoanalysts maybe have something to contribute to this discourse. It has to do with people doing crazy things. That is one of the things that we live with on a daily basis as an analyst is just how crazy people are in their lives, how uh, they just don't do things that make sense. Uh, if you go into psychoanalysis expecting to f f that you'll be able to help people become sensible you're really just in the wrong profession. It's not happening. Um, and it's something about being aware of that, uh, which doesn't seem directly to offer a great deal of hope about how we might enter the political discourse in a productive way. But frankly, whether it offers help, hope or not, uh, in a certain sense is, is secondary. It is what we have to offer. We have to try to enter the discourse in some way about this tendency of people to do crazy self-destructive things and see whether if we enter the discourse with that principle in mind, we can somehow find the chlorophyll that uh, Patricia is talking about. I don't know how you get from the one to the other. It's a kind of alchemy, I suppose, but, the truth is you've got to start with that craziness because it isn't just flights to Mars. It's, you know, it's been the, come on, it was Columbus, you know, sailing to North America. It's been going on for a long time. And the crazy things that come out of those sorts of ventures and the destructive things that come out of those 
those ventures and have been coming out of those ventures for, for centuries. Um, Bracha, are you there? Bracha Edinger, do you want to say something? Hi, <clears throat> yeah. Hi, everybody. It was wonderful. Thank you, Elisa. Wonderful talk. And, and I, I miss you all. And I wish I was in New York. Um, one thing that came, first of all, I think, uh, Elisa, what is uh, strong in what you're saying is that the structure of the subject that could correspond to whatever happened has nothing to do with the structure of the subject as is discussed in 20th century and even 19th century. Because this kind of um, multiplicity, which is in, um, in which we are somehow embraced, you know, we can talk about it. It's a subject in itself, which is um, wonderful. And what kind of uh, uh, denials or repression, what names will attribute to that? Well, for me, it is very much uh, related to a certain um, idea of future, of futuralities, I, I call it, and also to the, to the shock, the shock of the digital, the digital shock. People call it trauma. I don't call it trauma. I think we are shocked. We are shocked by this kind of multiplicities, which makes us their object. And we are these um, guys subject and all that we cannot but I'd like to, to 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 relate also to what David said and other people said in two ways we always say how psychoanalysis can contribute to change we think we've done a great job I think we should ask how psychoanalysis contributed to the catastrophe because psychoanalysis is at least you know, almost 100 years uh, influencing just any domain we might think about. So let's think, for example, in what way psychoanalysis is not the cure, but psychoanalysis is a part of, of producing certain mechanism of which we are responsible, perhaps, to start to, to change and also deconstruct. So I'll say one thing, for example, that's one thing I, I worked on uh, a lot and wrote about it, is that if we look carefully on how Freud structures, not death drive, but life drive, it is a death drive in disguise. Disguise, you say in English? Because, for example, in my paper, I write that everywhere, I, I analyze everywhere where he talks about life drive, the life drive that he defends and the metaphor he uses for it is the life drive of elementary organisms of the amoeba and of the unicells and the, and the um, germ cells and the unicells and the metazoa and the amoeba and all of that, which I think finally have nothing to do with life drive in any humanized or humanizing way because 
It has to do with the life of, of cells that will continue without us in the nice way we can say, which is also indifferent to us. So what kind of a life drive is it if it is in fact two, uh, two kinds, two groups of death drive in my view? Psychoanalysis contributed to a life drive which has nothing to do with life on earth, not even with the life of plants. That's already will be too big for it. And the second thing, how we contributed to the actual state, and so maybe we can find other ways, is for sure, I, I must say that, is the foreclosure of the feminine. And a lot of work to do, what both for Freudian and for Lacanian, what is the meaning of that kind of foreclosures of the feminine? What is the meaning of that split of the maternal and, and feminine that Lacan is so wisely doing? One of the points of that paper in which I criticize this life drive to show it's a death drive is uh, one of the points is to say that the feminine we have to deal with cannot tolerate this kind of splittings a priori, metaphysically even. Cannot, what, what is this kind of splitting that we agreed to agree upon, and how does that contribute, you know, the, to all the all the mechan all the entities related to that, which then we destroy with a huge joy. And um, when I say we, I it's because I say uh, that each one of us contributes to, to psychoanalysis. And therefore the question is how did we contribute to that and how can we change the big uh, possibility for me looks from another uh, understanding of the feminine beyond the four, this, the four schema of sexuation. So it's not the feminine because you have the phallic and the this and the four schema of sexuation, but all of them will be inside the same phallic mechanism which sees life drive as it sees it and death drive and then go, go beyond this four schema of sexuation so and from there on you know it, it takes us far from what was said here which is majorly um i think majorly what what uh, elisa brought to the table so the, the kind of, uh, it's not anymore subject-object in the way we know it, and not even in the way that, uh, that, that Lacan relates to the oral, the anal, the, the topologies that he offers, they are wonderful. Each one of them deals with what is inside, what is outside. But here we are dealing with kernels of us relating to kernels of otherness, which cannot um, fit anymore, even these topological, um, topological ways of dealing with the inside, outside, with the analyst pushing and with the oral as, as sucking and all of these topological that are wonderful to describe them, but we are not, we're not there. We're not there from the point you, you suggest, uh, Elisa, and we are not there because uh, from the point of view of our living 
in the digital area. I mean, I think there's there's something very important both in Bravo's comments and Alyssa to point us beyond the typical subject-object relations. I mean, I think that's what Alyssa means by traumatic temporality and um, more generally the unthinkable um, and the, the disorientation or shock that we're living through. And certainly the internet unmoors us from this. Yeah, and Clint was pointing to that as well with media ecologies and the ways that we're living, so. I think these points are very important. Thank you. Um, and I think we do have some work to do on thinking about the foreclosure of the feminine, which is also pointed to by Alyssa with the fetishization of Greta Thunberg. Um, we have a comment by Charles Clark. Yeah, well, I know we're over time, so I'm happy to, to see the floor here, although obviously I'd love to flap my gums. So what, what say you? Um, Go ahead. Yeah, we, we, we're happy to go over time. Okay. I'll be brief. Um, so thank you so much, Alyssa. Um, really thought-provoking and um, necessary uh, conversation you sparked here. And I really enjoyed the uh, comments from the panel as well. And so I, I guess I would like to hear your thoughts on sort of the way I approach this, Alyssa, since um, this jives with some of what Clint was saying. So I was surprised to hear the possibility of a general strike absent from Clint's uh, list of possible proposals. Um, and this seems to me to be something that's, you know, could lead to, but is categorically distinct from um, armed struggle and certainly from terrorism, since that is, you know, sort of a individualistic or small cell, you know, small group activity that falls into some of the traps about self-sovereignty we've already laid out, whereas the general strike is by its definition a collective action. Um, and we see interesting echoes of the strike um, in the dialogue surrounding climate change anyways. There is a, you know, like a green, um, there's like a climate strike day that they've had, but this is like where the bosses give the workers permission to like go out to the square for a few hours in the afternoon and then they come back to work. So it's like an absurd parody of what a strike actually would be like the forcible removal of labor from the, the sphere of production, um, you know, at least historically and, and necessarily coupled with a new arrangement of the distribution of goods and services, right? Like workers taking control of Amazon's distribution network and Walmart's warehouses and providing food and medicine and all these sorts of things as an alternative way of realizing our social organization. Like that ain't what that green climate strike thing was about at all. But we have the facade there, just like with the Green New Deal, we have the facade, you know, the sort of hint of some alternative way of organizing things that comes from a rational societal perspective rather than a profit-seeking perspective. But we all know if that goes to the Congress we have, it's gonna be immediately co-opted just as the sort of facade of the leader that we have in, in Greta Thunberg already has been. So you see how it's, in a way, it's not that these things are unthinkable, it's that we can totally think them, but only in their most hollow form. And what's more unthinkable than global climate catastrophe, or at least what's on par with that, the revolution with the capital R. And so it seems to me that the um, idea of a general strike is something that mediates between all of these concepts. And so I would ask whether you, you know, share my sort of zeroing in on the, um, yeah, I agree. Clint is saying it's easier to imagine the end of the world. Yeah. I, so, right. That's the problem. So is there a way to imagine um, intermediary steps? Um, 
between where we are now and a political situation where the climate problems are dissolved um, because we have a new arrangement of society. And, and then specifically, right, so that's the, should we have the general strike? And then I wonder what the duty of professionals is, especially academics. This is my own sort of like question I ask myself. If you look at where the a lot of the production of ideology that is so damning to us as a species takes place, it's in the universities that are overwhelmingly controlled by, you know, large pharmaceutical companies and the military, the police, right? And so here we are often situated in these or similar institutions as professionals. Um, so should we just be teaching, teaching classes on the history of the general strike? Should we be encouraging our students to go into STEM fields but not fall victim to the motivations that of profit-seeking that many of those folks have? Um, isn't this the sort of self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-immolation of at least our careers um, that models the recycling and the you know composting but may actually be directed towards something um, more accomplishable? Or am I just dreaming? Uh, here, as I probably am everywhere else. Can I, uh, uh, can I put this question to the panel, and then um, and then we'll we'll draw things to a close. Oh, I'll I'll go first if that's okay. Uh, just because Charles was addressing. Yeah, I I, I agree that a general strike as a um, um, as a mode of uh, a mode of organizing an action, you know, spanner in the works sort of thing. I mean, I was at WTO, the battle in Seattle in 1999 and seeing the role that AFL-CIO, the sort of uh, large organized labor played versus the more anarchist black bloc sort of side of things. So on the one hand, you know, I'm coming from a social democratic society like Canada, I totally believe in that. And we've had historically uh, general strikes um, and uh, and not to foreclose the possibility of of armed struggle <laughs> as well. But then on the other hand, that as teachers, as academics, that we have to teach the uh, analysis as well. I think there's still a place for analysis. I think there's still a place for critique. Otherwise we don't know what we're fighting or what we're fighting for. I wanna say, sure, maybe like, um, and I wanted to call attention to a word you used, which was rational. Um, and I guess I want to say, uh, like, what I was doing, and I don't, I mean, I leave it to you to, <laughs> to general strike, maybe yes, but I, I think that, that even that has to be put in the context with both a call for and a suspicion of all kinds of new forms of collectivities. So it may be that revolution, because like to me, I'm just looking at, at a climate that is so unstable in terms of how, how many factors are going into every collective action. So here I would just you know throw back at you QAnon and um, Twitter and say that every time you call for a general strike, you're also, um, you're, you're not only doing things rationally and to a political end, you are calling on drive energies. And those drive energies, some of them can be channeled in a political direction, and that's what the general strike would want to do. But I would be pretty suspicious of thinking that rationality is going to remain rational. 
I'll just respond quickly. I think um, I think it is clear. I have sort of modest expectations about psychoanalysis as a contributing factor to this larger political question. And the question of a general strike is certainly a political question. Uh, I'm not sure how much a psychoanalyst can contribute to thinking that through other than perhaps addressing this question of the rational. Uh, you know, to the extent that one wants to depend on rational, uh, I would say uh, the psychoanalyst uh, uh, suggests that, that you're gonna be missing an important element in the organization of the political, that's all. Yeah. Well, well, maybe on that rational note about the irrational, <laughs> join me in thanking um, Alyssa and Clint and Patricia and David for being with us. And thank you, everybody. I also really enjoyed the chat, which I haven't experienced in a Zoom that everyone writes and shares on the sidelines too. And thank you to all our um, people who chose to comment. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion by doctors Alyssa Martyr, Clint Burnham, Patricia Garavici, and David Lichtenstein, moderated by Dr. Jameson Webster. This presentation was originally given to Das Umbehagen in February of 2021. For more information about Das Umbehagen, visit dasumbehagen.org. Links to everything can be found at Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. As always, thanks to Carl Abrahamson for the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com. And now the song, She Said, Daddy from the album Disciplined by Order, a collaboration I did with UK artist Pete Murphy, available at his Bandcamp page. Visit petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also visit Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. All the music there is Name Your Price, so enjoy. She said, Daddy, do you have a time for me? Daddy, do you have space for me? for me. Daddy, do you have the keys for me? Daddy, do you have something for me? Daddy, do you have anything for me?
Daddy, do you have blood for me? Daddy, do you have a story for me? Daddy, do you have change for me? Discipline, silence. Daddy, do you have details for me? Daddy, do you have someone else for me? Pieces of the puzzle for me. Daddy, do you have a quarter for me? Daddy, do you have a dog for me? Daddy, do you have a shred for me? What is it, Father? Yeah.